There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi there and welcome again to the Explaining History podcast and uh, today we're in for a treat. We have the second of our conversations with David Dean Barrett, the um, uh, eminent historian of the uh, US war in the Pacific and uh, previously we uh, spoke with uh, David um, about the decision making and the uh, casualty uh, calculations um, that the American government went through in the final days before the dropping of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima. Uh, today we're going to discuss the uh, internal politics of the Japanese government in those fateful days before the decision to surrender. Okay, so without further ado, we're going to uh, go to David now in Colorado and uh, we're going to start off by hearing uh, about uh, the Potsdam Declaration uh, signed at the Potsdam Conference um, and also uh, begin to talk about the nature of the Japanese government um, before the uh, unconditional surrender. Um, uh, but I'm going to stop talking now myself and hand over to David who can take us through those points. Welcome, David. Thank you. So uh, the Potsdam Declaration began on the, uh, or, I'm sorry, the Potsdam Conference began on the 16th of July, uh, 1945. Potsdam is a, a suburb of Berlin. Uh, major outcomes uh, in terms of the conference that were related to the Pacific Theater, because much of the conference was devoted to how the Allies were going to deal with the Germans now that they had surrendered. Uh, were the Potsdam uh, Declaration, which occurred on July 25th. Um, the big three were meeting there, Stalin, mm -hmm. Churchill, eventually uh, succeeded by Attlee, because Churchill actually loses in an election in uh, uh, Britain uh, during the conference itself, and so he's replaced later on by Attlee. Uh, and then Truman, who is, has succeeded, obviously, uh, uh, FDR, Roosevelt, by that point in time. Uh, so they're meeting in a suburb of Berlin. Uh, one of the first things that Truman wants to do at the conference uh, is to uh, regain the commitment of uh, uh, Stalin 
that he had made to the leaders uh, in both the United States and Britain at Yalta a few months before uh, in February of 1945, committing the Soviet Union to join the war against Japan uh, within 90 days after the surrender of uh, Germany, which, as I, we mentioned last time, occurred as far as the Germans were, I mean the uh, British, I'm sorry, as far as the Soviets were concerned, on May 9th. And so they were pre preparing to attack uh, the uh, Japanese in Manchuria, northern China today, uh, by August 9th, mm -hmm. as we'll see that exactly when it does take place. So uh, very early on, actually on the 16th, uh, Truman uh, meets with, I'm sorry, on the 17th, I believe it is actually, uh, meets with Stalin, and one of the first things that he is secures is Stalin's commitment to do exactly that, to join the war against them. Uh, American military planners were, uh, especially the Army, very much wanted uh, the Russians' commitment to do that because for every division that the uh, Russians were able to tie down in China, they believed that they would save something on the order of 20,000 American casualties during the invasion mm -hmm. of Japan itself. Yeah. And so as far as they were concerned, this was critical. And as we also mentioned uh, in the last conversation, uh, 20, uh, somewhere three divisions uh, of the Japanese had been transferred in March of 1945 mm -hmm. to uh, Japan for the defense of the homeland as mm -hmm. part of Ketsugo. Another three divisions had gone to northern Korea at that point in time. So this was clearly something that was on Truman's mind. He wanted to get that secured as early as possible and, in fact, did so. Okay. Yeah. Um, the other uh, outcome of the uh, major outcome of the conference was, as I mentioned just a moment ago, the Potsdam Declaration itself. Sure. As far as uh, that was concerned, one of the things that... Uh, Secretary of War Stimson, Assistant Secretary of State Joseph Crew, and Churchill had wanted was a statement that included uh, allowing the Japanese to keep the emperor. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a considerable amount of debate about that prior to uh, the formation of that language. Uh, that specific language never made it into the Potsdam Declaration. Yeah. However, there was also nothing in the Declaration that specifically said that they were not going to allow the emperor to be included. Mm -hmm. Something that the Americans uh, intentionally uh, uh, left it that way as what they would refer to sort of as a, uh, an implied signal to the Japanese that that might be a possibility. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, the Potsdam Declaration was a deviation from the blanket unconditional surrender that the uh, uh, the Allies had uh, required of Germany. Mm -hmm. At the time that Germany surrendered, there were absolutely no terms whatsoever that were provided to the Germans. It was a flat-out unconditional surrender, and it probably in their view to some degree a, well, wouldn't do anything we want with you, <laughs> even though that isn't obviously exactly the way that worked out. Mm -hmm. So the Potsdam Declaration, which included 13 articles, was a deviation from what had been required of Germany. Mm -hmm. um, only in Article 13 uh, of the uh, Declaration was there any mention of the term unconditional surrender, and it was in a phrase 
applying it only to the Japanese armed forces. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, regarding the omission to include the emperor in the uh, um, uh, Potsdam Declaration, yeah. a comment that revisionist historians have seized on uh, that if the Allies had simply provided the Japanese that assurance at an, at, uh, by that point in time, uh, that the Japanese would have surrendered. Yeah. What, what we have during the conference, actually, dated uh, July 22nd, is a Magic Diplomatic Submarine, number 1214, a communique between uh, Foreign Minister Togo uh, and Japan's ambassador to the Soviet Union, Sato, mm-hmm. uh, which was actually a decrypt from a, a day earlier on July 21st. Uh, Togo flat out said to Sato that preserving, because Sato had intimated that the only thing that we can hope for uh, better than unconditional surrender is the preservation of the imperial system. Togo responded to that, that that single provision, uh, along with unconditional surrender, would not have granted uh, uh, or gotten the Japanese to capitulate, that they were not interested in an unconditional surrender, even with that single proviso. Sure. Okay. Uh, the declaration was only signed, uh, I shouldn't say only really, but only signed by the Americans, the British, and the Chinese. At that point in time, the Soviet Union had not entered the war. We yeah. were referencing that just a moment ago. They had not entered the war against the Japanese, and so it was only signed by those, by those three. Mm-hmm. It also contained uh, two really ominous warnings. One, we shall brook no delay in Article 5, and at the end of Article 13, the alternative is prompt and utter destruction. One last point, of paramount importance to both Truman and Marshall was the issue of Allied POWs who had suffered horribly at the hands of the Japanese, almost a third of them perishing during the course of the war. Mm -hmm. Beginning with the Potsdam Declaration, Truman included four times uh, in the final weeks of the war uh, in Article 10, as I just mentioned, in, on, in August or on August, August 9th, in a speech announcing the second atomic attack on Nagasaki, and in the Allied counteroffer uh, to Japan's surrender offer, yeah. and finally in the instrument of surrender, the importance of the treatment of the uh, prisoners of war. Yes. Okay. Upon receipt of the declaration, even the most moderates among the, the big six, viewed it as a weakening, a weakening of American resolve, because here for the first time we have terms, mm-hmm. not like what we, what would, as I said, we had uh, required of Germany just yeah. a few weeks, uh, a few months earlier, I should say. Yeah. Foreign, Foreign Minister Togo, in particular, uh, the primary instigator, frankly, of Japan's efforts to end the war, immediately saw the difference between the blanket unconditional surrender forced on Germany and the Potsdam Declaration and stressed, quote, the declaration must be treated with the utmost circumspection, both domestically and international. Mm-hmm. In particular, he feared the consequences if Japan should manifest an intent to reject it. Yeah. However, before he got a chance, so he saw this as an opportunity to begin negotiations mm-hmm. with the Allied powers. However, before he got a chance to do anything about it, on the morning of the 28th, so we're now talking three days after the issuance of the Potsdam Declaration, Mm -hmm. in one of Japan's uh, largest newspapers, 
Prime Minister Suzuki was quoted as calling it a thing of no great value. Later the same day, that afternoon, he held an hour-long press conference, during which he referred to it as a rehash of the Cairo uh, Declaration. Mm -hmm. Uh, And as such, the government does not find it of any important value. Mm -hmm. And there is no no other recourse but to ignore it entirely and resolutely, this is a quote, fight for the successful conclusion of the war. The actual word that Suzuki used to describe Japan's position was mokusatsu, interpreted to mean to ignore it entirely, to take no notice of it, or treat it with silent contempt. Hmm. Well, there could be really no way of misinterpreting that by the Allied powers. Go ahead, you were going to say, ask something. Well, that shows us something quite quite interesting in the the thinking of at least Suzuki, if if not others, that there was a a, um, a, a confidence even at that point that um, the war could still be perhaps not necessarily won, but something could be salvaged from it. Um, was the the point of view that well, if we if we say no uh, and they they do invade, then we can cause them such enormous amounts of, uh, of bloodshed that the the Allied will would, res- would would crumble. Or was it that um, they have introduced the idea of kind of a conditional surrender, and that reading between the lines means that they're, they're looking for some sort of negotiated settlement where Japan can keep. Um, a, a lot of its power. I mean, what do you think was was, was the mentality there? Well, they did believe. Uh, really, uh, the two that you just mentioned actually do tie together and and kind of explain their position. First of all, they did believe that in an invasion, they they felt they could create such horrific casualties that the United States would, uh, its will to continue fighting would be broken. Mm-hmm. And as a result, as you put it, they didn't see that as a way of winning the war. What they saw that as a way of, to your second point, was a way then of creating a pathway to a negotiated settlement that was far more favorable to Japan that did include conditions that they felt were uh, were sufficient yeah. to allow them to go ahead and allow the war to end. Mm. <laughs> Not a surrender, uh, to end on terms that were more favorable to Japan, so the two are really kind of tied together. Yeah. Yes. So the, it's um, it, it is always fascinating to me. You 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 find there are numerous parallels in history where there are you was at the eleventh hour, and there's someone saying there's still everything to play for. You know, despite what you might think, the the ruins around you, there's still everything to play for if we just hold on. Yes. Um, and it's, yes. A further statement, let me add just another quick uh, footnote and then go back to you yeah. if you'd like. Uh, the other, what you would consider moderate among the big six, was Admiral Mitsumasu Yanni. Uh, when asked after this rejection by Suzuki, by a confident Rear Admiral Takagi, a longtime opponent of the war, why the government had rejected the Allies' offer, Yanni said, if one is the first to issue a statement, he is always at a disadvantage. Churchill has fallen. America is beginning to be isolated. The government before will ignore it. There, I'm sorry, the government therefore will ignore it. Mm-hmm. There is no need to rush. So both he and uh, 
Togo, missed clearly missed the import of we shall brook no delay. Yeah. And the alternative is prompt hmm. and utter destruction. You see, but Yanni, Yanni, keeping to your the point you were hmm. making just a moment ago, exactly follows yeah. follows into the same uh, category of their belief that they if they simply hold out, hmm. they can do better. And they um, don't need to be concerned about the immediacy of resolving this conflict. And, and there are some interesting parallels here with um, the, the final days of the Third Reich, for example, in that you, you find um, Hitler increasingly divorced from uh, reality, imagining that there are divisions where they don't exist, and all that sort of thing. And his, his lieutenants, Martin Bormann, uh, Joseph Goebbels, those, those sorts of people, trying to kind of really, uh, not so much with the Soviets, because they know there's the, the the intention of the Soviets is pretty unambiguous. We're trying to really kind of read read the tea leaves and understand uh, and, and interpret um, if there's any wriggle room with with the Allies. And the reality, of course, uh, Britain, America, and the Soviet Union had all agreed on unconditional surrender from from Nazi Germany. But particularly when Roosevelt dies. Um, uh, Hitler and um, Goebbels are both over the moon. They think, "Well, fantastic! This is, you know, one of our enemies is gone, and um, the you know Churchill is a spent force, uh, and and that's going to have have a, have an importance." And what they didn't realise is that it doesn't matter whether Roosevelt dies, whether Churchill is tired and unwell as he was. Individuals um, were less important than the kind of the institutional will of. Allied governments um, yes. to carry on. There was no question that Truman would take um, a more conciliatory line to either Germany or Japan, or that if whoever you know Clement Attlee would have taken or deviated in any way. So um, that that that's telling, and perhaps there's something integral to the kind of the mentalities behind fascism um, of of that kind of highly personalised. Understanding, or, or perhaps it's just that both regimes have completely lost touch with the reality uh, by the end of the war. I would agree. Uh, I, I think that they completely misread that. Uh, they also misread, because I'm sure that they, they would have had an opportunity to have heard about it, both Germany and Japan, that literally two days after uh, FDR had passed away, in Truman's first speech to the United States Congress, he reiterated the fact that they were going to continue on with FDR's objectives for the war. And foremost among those, for instance, was the unconditional surrender mm-hmm. of the enemies. And so, yeah, there, I, 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 I don't know whether that was just um, uh, a lack of uh, knowledge of the institutions, uh, the forms of government that we had in the United States and Britain, uh, and how succession would take place and what its effect would be on mm. the following, we'll call it, leadership of those countries. But they completely misread that. Well, I suppose if, if you exist within um, a totalitarian state, which is a, also a personal dictatorship in Germany, and uh, an, an imperial um, autocratic monarchy in Japan, your the way of thinking about pluralistic states... Um, like America and Great Britain is um, prob- probably highly difficult just as if you live in a liberal democracy now thinking about what goes on in North Korea is probably um, you know uh, probably hard hard to uh, conceive of 
Um, so we were going to talk, weren't we, um, about the um, the structural makeup of the of the Japanese government? Perhaps we could uh, we could discuss that. Perfect segue. <laughs> there you go. Yes, Japan was being ruled by what I would refer to as uh, essentially military oligarchy at this point in time. Uh, specifically, uh, there was really a, a superset of the cabinet that was referred to as the Big Six or the Supreme Council at the direction of war. Six guys um, that were, for all intents and purposes, making the major decisions for the Japanese. It was comprised of the prime minister who was uh, chosen by the emperor. In this particular case, a retired admiral, uh, uh, Suzuki, Kantoro Suzuki. Uh, Army minister, Anami. Navy minister, Yanni. Army chief of staff, uh, Yamuzu. Navy Chief of Staff Toyota and Foreign Minister Shigenori Togo, not Tojo, Mm -hmm. Togo, T-O-G-O. Togo was the only civilian in the group. Uh, A couple of characteristics of this government uh, made it highly dysfunctional, (laughs) excuse me, especially at least in the context of the circumstances that they now found themselves. Specifically, uh, any issue required the group uh, to uh, create a unanimous, or to get a unanimous vote in order for resolution of the issue, which essentially conveyed then a veto power upon each member of the group. Second, uh, the resignation of any member of the group would force a new government to be formed. Well, this, like I said, created a, a very potentially uh, volatile situation uh, while this was going on, especially on a highly contentious, the highly contentious issue of deciding to end the war mm-hmm. and how uh, and under what terms, uh, or whether you were going to simply accept, in this case, the Potsdam Declaration as the means to end the war. Mm-hmm. So both of those things played into uh, ultimately how this is going to get resolved. Okay, so now that we've looked at that, what takes place? After the So the declaration was on the 25th. The rejection, albeit it was not a formal rejection, it only took place in the newspaper, as I mentioned, and during the news conference mm-hmm. that Suzuki held. There was never a formal rejection sent to the Allied governments of the Potsdam Declaration. So that took place on the 28th of July. Nothing takes place of any significance between then now and the first atomic attack on Hiroshima on August 6th. What takes place after that attack? Well, the first thing that happens after reports start coming in is the Army begins disputing whether or not the bomb was an atomic. Mm -hmm. Um, It wasn't enough, apparently, that a single plane had dropped a single bomb and destroyed an entire city. Yeah. So one of the first things that Anami, arguably the most powerful guy in the uh, Big Six, does is send Dr. Yoshina, uh, the nation's leading nuclear scientist, to Hiroshima to investigate. Mm -hmm. Yoshina had been involved with both the atomic uh, programs of the Army and the Navy uh, Mm -hmm. in Japan. Uh, Something that I think a lot of people are unaware of is that the Japanese did attempt to develop their own atomic bomb during the war. Uh, They didn't succeed, obviously. Um, They actually came to the conclusion that the effort to... They believed it was theoretically possible to create the bomb, but they did not believe that it was possible to create during the course 
of what they thought was going to be a relatively short war. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's like much the same way that actually Germany came to that conclusion at the end of 1941. Yeah. Okay? The Americans, just as a, as a sidebar, at almost the exact same time came to the conclusion that the war was going to be long mm -hmm. and that the possibility of an atomic bomb could be uh, a, a, uh, a huge, have a huge impact on the war. And so they threw their resources into it in a huge way. Okay? Mm -hmm. Two days after the atomic attack on Hiroshima, Suzuki attempted to call the first uh, emergency session of the Big Sixth on the 8th. But the meeting had to be delayed until the 9th because, as unbelievable as it may sound, a member of the council decided he had more pressing issues elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> finally, at around uh, 10 o'clock in the morning on the 9th, the group sat down for the first time. That morning, word also had come that the Soviet Union had declared war on the Japanese and were attacking the Kwantung Army in Manchuria, as well as, on a much smaller scale, some of their forces in Korea. Mm -hmm. Earlier that same morning, prior to the meeting, Anami, Yamuzu, and another general, Kawabe, had met with clearly the knowledge of the attack on Hiroshima and the fact that likely a single bomb, the bomb was atomic, albeit they still yeah. claim they didn't have absolute confirmation, and that the Soviets had entered the war against them uh, that day. Uh, it had no effect on their thinking in the sense of we need to end the war as quickly as possible. Yeah. Anami is quoted as saying is relative to the uh, conference coming up that morning that it will be rough, uh, but I will risk my life. I'm not sure how he thought he was going to risk his life in the conference, but nevertheless, that's what he said. If what I insist on in the meeting cannot be accepted, I will resign and have myself conscripted into a unit in China. Right. I can fight there against the Soviets. Mm -hmm. Clearly, this is an indication uh, uh, contradictory to what some revisionist historians uh, say that the Soviet entry into the war caused a panic among the Japanese leadership and caused their capitulation, their quick, their quick capitulation. Yeah, and it didn't happen at all. In fact, we're still five days away from when they do surrender, yeah. and we're on the, at the ninth, three days after Hiroshima. Okay, as I mentioned in our, our first podcast, uh, as recently as March, uh, as oh, I, I'm sorry, I did mention that already, so I'll just jump past that. Um, the Kwantung Army, I did mention in the previous podcast, uh, had been severely gutted by yeah. that point in time, and its mission had been changed to a fighting withdrawal to northern Korea. A once powerful force, it had been gutted long since of oh. most of its most powerful divisions. Okay. Shortly after the meeting gets started, uh, very quickly what you see are two factions being uh, developing. The hardliners comprised of Anami, Yamuzu, and Toyota, and a peace faction headed by Togo uh, that also included Yanni, Suzuki, uh, and the latter, uh, um, and Suzuki. Yeah. Um, the hardliners were demanding four conditions uh, to end the war. The preservation of the imperial system, mm -hmm. no occupation, control over disarmament, and control over war crimes trials, or a continuation of the war. The peace faction was willing to accept the single proviso of just preserving the imperial system. Uh, 
the day before, uh, relevant, uh, a day before, Togo had met with the emperor advising him that they needed to accept the Potsdam Declaration. Hirohito had agreed with the foreign minister and told him to inform Suzuki in light of the new weapon. Right. So this is the first indication here that Hirohito was influenced by the atomic bomb mm-hmm. to end the war. Um, he further went on to say Japan is powerless to respond, something that at least would start becoming uh, aware, they would start becoming aware of, meaning the uh, big six, mm. as the meeting progressed, okay, for a very specific reason. Yeah. As, such, as such, the emperor wanted the war terminated as mm. soon as possible. As the meeting was progressing, at about one o'clock in the afternoon came word of the second atomic attack, uh, almost uh, just within minutes of the time that Admiral Toyota had told the group that no nation, including the United States, had the resources to produce more than one atomic bomb. Then comes this word that a second atomic attack has taken place on Nagasaki. Right. Right. Uh, Togo, I mean, Toyota's comments, I think, devote, uh, need some further uh, scrutiny here. Mm-hmm. If you read between the lines of what Toyota was implying uh, here, he was essentially saying that Japan had no further risk of atomic attacks on the uh, on of atomic attacks by the United States, and so he was willing to mm-hmm. simply write off Hiroshima as a casualty of war. Yeah. Yeah. What the second bomb then proved was the United States did possess the resources to produce multiple atomic bombs. Yeah. And that a new reality now existed. Uh, With the new weapon, perhaps the United States would simply stand off and use its ability to continue to drop atomic bombs and destroy Japan, rendering Ketsugo useless because if the, if the allies the United States specifically in terms of the first invasion anyway uh, didn't invade Ketsugo had no means whatsoever mm-hmm. to do any damage to the allies and so the second it's the second atomic bomb that sweeps away Japan's bargaining position um, and there is that element of well how many bombs do the Americans have I can't remember off offhand. I think it was six, but I could be wrong. By the time of the invasion, uh, October—I mean, sorry, November first—they expected to have at least seven. Right. Okay. Possibly, possibly as many as nine. Yeah. Yeah. The the United States, in its efforts to build an atomic bomb, also built uh, the manufacturing capacity to build multiple bombs. Yes. This wasn't just an issue of we've got two, we're spent, we have no more. Yeah. In fact, uh, may I, I'll, actually I'll get to it in a moment in terms of Marshall's reaction mm-hmm. uh, and the use potentially of those bombs at a later time. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. If necessary. Mm -hmm. But despite what you would, yes, what we were just saying there, which was that the Japanese... We're now facing a new reality. What was the reaction after the second atomic bomb? No change in the thinking of the hardliners. No. None. Uh, you, when uh, Suzuki finally took a vote among the uh, big six, they were divided equally, three to accept the single condition and three to either accept four conditions to end the war or continue the war. Nothing changed as a result, despite what that new reality that they now face, which was the United States may, well, may very well have an arsenal of these weapons and just continue to use those to, to completely destroy Japan. Um, later in the afternoon, a, uh, a cabinet meeting, the entire cabinet met, and they, like uh, their, uh, the meeting of just the big six, remained uh, in, frac in factions and could not decide uh, or could not reach a unanimous decision to end the war. Uh, Suzuki uh, and his uh, secretary, Sagamitsu, mm -hmm. uh, decided, uh, along, along, decided to pursue something that they had also discussed with Togo uh, earlier, which was to uh, convene an, an imperial conference at which time the emperor, who's already stated to Togo what his uh, beliefs are in terms of ending the war, mm -hmm. that they should attempt to convene an imperial conference, uh, an unprecedented event, where he could give his opinion mm -hmm. on an undecided issue. And they managed to pull that off, uh, kind of as, as a subterfuge, uh, with uh, against uh, Muzu, Anami, and Toyota, right. who thought that they were simply going to talk uh, or uh, discuss uh, the declaration of war that needed to happen against the Soviets mm -hmm. at that point in time, rather than an undecided issue in terms of the surrender or the end, terminating the war against uh, the Allies. So the meeting is uh, is pulled together at, uh, at the very end of the day. Literally, they start convening just minutes before midnight uh, on the night. Yes. Uh, uh, Suzuki offers them the opportunity, both sides, to present their case to the emperor, after which the emperor, at about 2 o'clock in the morning, so this has gone on for two hours at this point in time, mm -hmm. finally gets to say what he wants to do. Uh, and during that time, without belaboring it, because he went into considerable uh, dialogue with the group, um, uh, or um, he, he tells them that he wants to accept the uh, uh, 
peaceful, peace factions, single proviso of uh, the preservation of the imperial system. Right. To that gets added by uh, Baron Heronuma, who is part of the uh, Privy Council uh, and a very senior advisor to the uh, emperor, uh, that they want to do this, or they're willing to do this with a essentially an added condition. In other words, in addition to preserving the imperial system, it will be with the uh, understanding that no prejudices of the prerogatives of these, uh, they're doing so with the sovereign leader of Japan, yeah. with the understanding that the said declaration does not compromise any demand, this is a specific language, that prejudices the prerogatives of his majesty as sovereign ruler. Okay. Okay, that's a really important statement because mm -hmm. what it means is that the same form of government that took Japan into aggressive war in the first place mm -hmm. against the Allies would be able to remain intact yeah. uh, if the Allies agreed to this. Yeah, and it means that the Emperor will still have whatever arbitrary decision-making powers he previously had. I was going to ask about your views on Hirohito because there are various different historiographies uh, about him uh, from conscious perpetrator of Japanese war crimes to the kind of sort of rather weak and hapless individual who is um, swept along by militarists uh, over whom he has little control. Um, what, from your reading of Hirohito, how do you, what interpretation do you have of his character? I, I side with uh, the former right. uh, uh, definition that you gave of Hirohito. Uh, I think he was very involved from the very beginning of this, uh, uh, include, including the decision to go to war yes. with the Allies. Uh, he was uh, being briefed on a daily basis, practically, by his military in terms of what was going on. Now, you you could certainly make the issue accurately, I would say, that there were certainly times that his military w wasn't always giving him the most accurate uh, information in mm. terms of what was going on. Uh, I think wherever they thought they had an opportunity to do so, uh, they would kind of lead him in a direction that they wanted mm. to go. Uh, but... Uh, I think it's pretty clear that he was highly aware of what was going on. In fact, in some of these uh, meetings or briefings that he was getting, it was not unlike Hirohito to ask very pointed questions, uh, insightful questions, yeah. uh, as far as the information that he was getting. So uh, to, to act like he had no involvement, didn't understand what was going on, that he was being led around by the nose, that he was a weak leader, etc., uh, I don't agree. Um, no. it's, again, sort of going back to this, I guess you'd say, somewhat dysfunctional aspect of the Japanese government. While he had uh, all that involvement and he was considered the supreme leader mm -hmm. of Japan, uh, he didn't operate like a typical monarch. No. Uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, what we, I guess, would have thought of in, in earlier centuries as, you know, a king or a queen or whatever, uh, essentially a, a, a dictator. I guess. Right. Uh, he didn't operate in that fashion. But what's interesting here, where we're at right now, and what we'll see continue to happen over the next few days, is when he wanted to, he could exert his authority yeah. uh, on the uh, leadership of Japan to do his will. Yes. 
interestingly, going yet again to kind of the dysfunctional aspect of the Japanese government, despite the fact that he could do that, the Japanese government wasn't actually required to follow what he said. Having said that, though, when you put uh, or, or create a situation where this leader is is viewed among the Japanese people as divine and that his word is in uh, is involuble. Is that the word? Yes. I think that's the word I'm looking for. Um, then uh, it would be extremely difficult for any of its leaders to go against him. Yes. Under those circumstances. I mean, if he, if he does express his will. So it's, it's just a, a really kind of strange form of government that the Japanese had mm-hmm. uh, at this point. Okay. Uh, do you have anything else before I go ahead? No, let's, let, let's, let's plow on. Let's, let's so, so the Japanese, uh, after Hiranuma had added his condition on the condition, they send their response. Oh, I'm sorry, one last comment. Uh, prior to them sending it, uh, Anami extracted one last concession from Suzuki and Yanni that if the Allies don't agree or accept our conditions... Mm-hmm. We're back to fighting the war or demanding the four conditions that the hardliners had demanded in the meetings. Yeah. Okay, so now they send the response uh, through uh, Sweden and Switzerland uh, over to the Allies, and uh, it reaches this 13-hour time lag. It reaches the United States in the early morning hours of the 10th of August uh, in the United States. Uh Truman wastes no time mm-hmm. in calling together uh, some members of his cabinet to begin uh, considering uh, what their response will be to the Japanese offer. Mm-hmm. Uh, Secretary of War Stimson, uh, Admiral Leahy, and uh, Admiral Forrestal all believe that they should accept the Japanese offer as is. Yes. Burns, Secretary of State Burns, stood alone in his opposition, uh, basically viewing the statement uh, with understanding mm-hmm. that said declaration did not compromise any demand for the prejudice, which prejudiced the prerogatives of his majesty as sovereign ruler, amounted to a refusal by the Japanese government to accept unconditional surrender. Yeah. Uh, or the Potsdam Declaration, as is now stated in forms of those terms. Um, his argument was ultimately persuasive to Truman, and Truman said, all right, let's come up with an alternative. Burns immediately began working on language mm-hmm. uh, to, uh, as a counteroffer to the Japanese. Uh, the counteroffer included two important changes. It said, from the moment of surrender, the authority of the emperor of the Japanese government to rule the state shall be subject to the supreme allied powers. Yes. Ultimately, MacArthur. And the ultimate form of government of Japan shall, in accordance with the Potsdam Declaration, be established by the freely expressed will of Japanese people. Well, both of those requirements would be uh, contradict what... Uh, Baron Hiranuma was attempting to do and what General Anami was saying in terms of acceptance of the Japanese offer. And so, sure. as you might expect, when it gets back to the Japanese who have been uh, waiting anxiously, uh, they get this response and they immediately are thrown into turmoil because they see this as 
something that the, the hardliners are not willing to accept. No. So the foreign ministry actually misinterprets some of the language to try to uh, appease, to some degree, uh, Hirohito himself, uh, the Japanese hardliners, uh, and the Japanese hardliners, and Baron Hiranuma. Um, so they, over the course of the, the next few hours, come up with a, uh, a basically a strategy doing that to yeah. convince first Hirohito to go ahead uh, that they needed to accept this, get Kaido, his uh, primary uh, uh, most trusted advisor, on their side, which they managed to do. However, they don't get, obviously, the military or the hardliners who no. view this as a uh, not protecting the imperial system and their ability to continue to rule as they have before. Mm -hmm. So the government is essentially thrown into almost chaos uh, over the course of the next two and a half days. Yes. Uh, during that period of time, uh, a coup uh, attempt by middle-grade officers mm -hmm. within the uh, Japanese army primarily um, uh, begin pulling together uh, their thoughts and a strategy to uh, upend the peace process because word of the peace process has leaked down to them. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the members of that group is a guy by the name of uh, Lieutenant Colonel Takashita, who is the brother-in-law of Anami. Right. So he is highly aware of what's going on as far as this coup that's beginning to take form uh, in the Japanese uh, military yes. among the officers. Uh, on the 14th, so as I said, two and a half days, this is kind of the chaotic situation that's going on in the Japanese. And once again, they, they quickly sort of fall back into the same kinds of arguments that they were having on August 9th about the new counteroffer which the peace faction is willing to accept. Yes. So the Potsdam Declaration, coupled with the uh, Burns counteroffer, the mm -hmm. peace faction is willing to accept that. The hardliners uh, that I've mentioned, uh, they're back to either wanting four conditions uh, or continuing the war. Mm -hmm. So again, once once again, as a uh, 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 contradiction, I guess, to the uh, revisionist theory that the Japanese were willing to surrender. Yes. Uh, if we'd just given them the emperor. Here we are now, nine days. I'm sorry, yeah, I'm sorry, uh, eight days. Yeah. Eight days after Hiroshima. Uh, and uh, the Japanese government is still in turmoil about how to, or how or should they uh, end the war. And in fact, because you don't have a unanimous decision, it means the war is going to continue uh, at this point in time. Mm -hmm. uh, so. Finally, uh, the morning of uh, the 14th, uh, after uh, Burns, in probably a, a master stroke, uh, had ordered the dropping of millions of leaflets uh, on Japan, and in particular, uh, their capital city of Tokyo, right. which had fluttered to the ground, some of which fell in the imperial uh, compound. Mm -hmm. And Kaido, who was there, managed to pick one up and saw what it said. Uh, concerned about the possibility of a revolution within the country, now that really broad word was getting out of a surrender discussion between Japan and the Allies was uh, was uh, at risk, 
He convinced, along with Suzuki, convinced Emperor Hirohito that they needed to uh, uh, convoke a second imperial yeah. conference as soon as possible. Uh, Hirohito basically said that uh, under the circ and Suzuki, they didn't feel like they could go through the sort of formal channels no. of that, which would have involved the hardliners, Toyota and Amuzu again, in a, another subterfuge. Uh, Emperor Hirohito simply said, this time, uh, if they don't want to go along, I'll convoke it on my own. Right. Which, going back to the point you were, the question that you were raising here a little while ago about the emperor, uh, how much power or control did he really exert? Well, if he wanted to, he certainly could, right? Sure. So they, they begin the meeting at around 1055. This time around, Suzuki only offers an opportunity for the dissenters, the hardliners, to present their case. They do. And when they're done, Emperor Hirohito, for a second time, uh, sides with the peace faction and says, I'm willing to accept the Potsdam Declaration along with the, the Burns counteroffer mm -hmm. and go ahead with the peace process. Right. In the immediate aftermath of uh, the conference, on three occasions, literally within minutes, Anami uh, considers with Amuzu, with his uh, secretary, uh, and with uh, Takashita, the possibility of torpedoing the entire process, even though they've just agreed to do so. Right. Second time uh, from the emperor. Uh, in other words, the emperor has commanded him to accept this for a second time. Anami yeah. considers that, only to finally give up and say, no, it's too far gone, essentially, at this point in time. I have to allow it to go ahead and continue. Sure. <laughs> Over the course of the rest of the day, uh, the coup... Uh, continues its planning process, attempts to get Anami to formally uh, uh, commit to the uh, Akuda attempt. Mm -hmm. He still fails to say, either I will support it or I want it destroyed. And the, so it, con it continues its planning process. I'm sorry, you were going to ask a question? I was going to say, the, and the, the objective of the coup would have been essentially to... Um, not. Not necessarily to overthrow the emperor, but but to kind of re return him to the control of the hardliners to to be able to exert to to seize him and and exert power over his decision making. Would that have been? Their their basic belief was that they had he had been misled yeah. by the peace uh, faction, yeah. and so one of their elements or one of their objectives in the coup would be to uh, assassinate. Togo, assassinate Suzuki, assassinate General Mora, who was in charge of the Imperial uh, Guards, if necessary, um, so that they could stop the surrender process and continue the war. Yeah. So kill, hoping, kill off the and peace. And hoping that Anami would lead them. Yeah. 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 So that process continues over the course of the day. Uh, a little after midnight, they uh, attempt the coup. Uh, they do take uh, control temporarily over the imperial grounds. They attempt to get Mori to uh, join the coup. He uh, refuses and ultimately is assassinated by them, along with another uh, person who happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time in his office. Mm -hmm. They forge an order uh, that says that he has supported them and continue to their efforts uh, to gain control with the coup. Mm -hmm. uh, they attempt... Uh, they go to both uh, Suzuki and Togo's homes and attempt to assassinate each of them. 
Neither of them are home, so they're unsuccessful in doing that. They go to Anami one last time, attempting to get his uh, support uh, to lead the coup. He refuses, and a few hours later, at about 5.45 in the uh, a.m., uh, he uh, commits uh, seppuku, ritualistic suicide, uh, and kills himself. They attempt to seize control of a radio station and are unsuccessful in doing that. Mm-hmm. And in the early ma- morning hours of the 15th, oh, they also attempt to, uh, in the Imperial uh, uh, Palace, to uh, uh, destroy the Imperial rescripts, which had been recorded earlier that day, the voice of Hirohito that was going to announce yeah. the end of the war the following day at noon. They attempt to find that and are unable to do so, mm-hmm. primarily due to the fact that uh, at the same time all this is going on, the last bombing mission of the war passes over Tokyo or passes so nearby Tokyo that fearing a third atomic attack, they black out the entire city. And so the conspirators are tearing this building apart, trying to find the rescript in the black, in the dark. Yeah. Fortunately, some of the people that had been involved with uh, recording it uh, had the foresight, uh, knowing the possibility of a coup, that they had hidden it away in a safe and covered it with a bunch of papers and other things, mm-hmm. and the conspirators were never able to find it. No. Ultimately, when it, it fails that early uh, that morning, uh, the conspirators kind of one by one uh, uh, commit suicide themselves. Interestingly, one of the members of that uh, conspiracy, Takashita, one, he's never put on trial or really disciplined in any fashion but uh, does not commit suicide and, in fact, uh, provides some very interesting testimony about uh, the coup and some of those things uh, uh, after the war is over. So anyway, the the coup ultimately fails, and at noon uh, on the 15th, the uh, emperor's rescript is played to the Japanese, many of which have never heard his voice before. It does not say that the Japanese are surrendering. It says that they are ending the war because it hasn't worked out quite the way they wanted it to, and mm-hmm. an incredible understatement. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, uh, it does not mention anything, once again, about the Soviets' entry into the war as having an impact. However, without naming the atomic bomb specifically, it does mention uh, the, this new and horrific weapon that the United States has developed uh, as a factor, mm-hmm. and in fact, that the Japanese, because of this, will essentially be the benevolent nation, uh, fall on their sword, uh, end the war now, and save all of humanity. Right. Yeah. You talk about revisionism there. That's, <laughs> that's revisionism <laughs> for you. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty comical, uh, I think, really. Yeah. Um, but... Uh, so that's that's kind of the story of what takes place with the Japanese leadership in the last few days of the war. So, so that so there are there are so many things at, at play there. Well, um, just to kind of um, to, to to conclude, I, I think for for me the the key takeaway is that our our sense of certainty and inevitability that you know 75 years later we look back and uh, I've, you know a lot of what we perceive is um filtered through everything from um the way history is taught in schools to popular culture war movies all that kind of stuff that um you know you, you read a, a history textbook and, and there is uh, essentially a sense from like 
1944-1945, a sense of inevitability that the, the war is kind of won and the Allies are winning and it'll just a, ma- just a matter of time. But if you, if you drill down and look microscopically at that sort of almost 10-day period of time, there's nothing certain. Nothing, no. nothing no, is a given. Uh, yeah, and, uh, to, and to tie into that, I, mentioned, I wanted to mention this earlier, but you just uh, made me remember it. Uh, both Marshall uh, and Stimson in particular were not convinced that these atomic bombs uh, on Hiroshima and Nagasaki were going to be sufficient to gain Japan's capitulation. Yeah. Uh, Marshall was so concerned about it uh, coupled with the reports of the incredible buildup that was taking uh, place on Kyushu, that after the second attack on Nagasaki, he ordered uh, all further production of atomic bombs to be withheld uh, and reserved, meaning those bombs, uh, for the potential use as tactical weapons in the invasion of Japan mm-hmm. beginning November 1st, 1945, and we said that it would potentially at that point be as, at least seven to potentially as many as nine available. Yeah, um, They would have been used against the rear areas of logistics and communications as well as obviously the troop concentrations on three major invasion beaches uh, over which American soldiers and Marines would have then attacked over an atomic battlefield. Right. Uh, How serious was he about this? Uh, He was in consultation with the scientists uh, in uh, Alamogordo, and they're looking at their testing data uh, as far as the atomic or the radiation effects uh, after the uh, test shot on uh, July 16th, the the first test uh, successful explosion of atomic bomb, Mm -hmm. as well as other scientists uh, and military in terms of well. What do you think the effect essentially would be if we do this and send our troops across that kind of a, of a battlefield? So it was, this was absolutely, I mean, they were dead serious about right. having to look at these kinds of eventualities. And to your point, uh, it spoke volumes of their uncertainty in terms yeah. of whether this would cause the Japanese yeah. to eventually capitulate. And that word there, just as a finishing thought, uncertainty. Um, you look at almost any theatre of the the Second World War, uh, and the the fact that neither side exactly knows how things will play out has such huge impact on decision making. Um, and you know we have this benefit of hindsight that we know what happened, and or, yeah, to to a certain degree. Um, and so it's the, it, the 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 kind of the cognitive error is to always project back a certainty onto the people in the past that often didn't really exist. Correct. I mean, one, one of the things as historians that we're called upon to do is to attempt to artificially place ourselves back into yeah. the context of the time. Yeah. What what were the leaders doing? And that's why, frankly, why I chose especially to, uh, to focus so much on the leaders, but to transport ourselves back in time to when they were actually dealing with the issues, knowing what they knew, yeah. dealing with the circumstances they had to. It's not fair to be where we are today, 75 years after the fact, and artificially 
place our uh, judgments of what we would have done or how things should have played out or this or that uh, now because yeah. they don't have that hindsight. No. They only had what they were dealing with at the time it was actually happening, yeah. real time for them. Yes, and they, they, the tendency to pick the least worst option. Sure. And that's what this really was, ultimately. Yeah. I mean, uh, they knew this was something that was terrible, and I'm not you know, saying, uh, sitting here saying, I, gee, I thought it was terrific that they used the atomic bomb. It was terrible that they had to use the atomic bomb. But I think as we've talked through this over these two podcasts, what's absolutely clear is how many more would have been lost. Yeah. Uh, Americans, Japanese, and as I also pointed out, Asians, POWs, uh, had the war continued. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, there we must uh, finish, David. Thank you so much. It's been uh, a, a pleasure to talk to you over the, the, the past two podcasts. I know the, the listeners have got a, a great deal out of it, and we'd be delighted to invite you back onto the show into, in, the, in the future. Uh, it's been a real honour to uh, talk to you. Um, and you can buy uh, David Dean Barrett's uh, excellent 140 Days to Hiroshima from all good bookshops, published by who, David? Diversion Books in the United States, and I don't know quite how soon, but sometime by the History Press in the UK. Brilliant. Look out for it, and it's uh, going to be um, an excellent addition to uh, anybody's World War II uh, library. Thanks so much, and let's finish Thank there. you. All the best. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.